Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It's my great pleasure to welcome a friend to the show. I've known Alexandra Adamson. I'm going to call her Alex throughout the show, but I've known Alexandra for many years now. I met her when she was at Bowery Capital, and we'll talk about some of her experiences. Today, she is the founder and executive director of Women in Sales Everywhere, but that's known as WISE. We'll talk a little bit about that, and our topic for the day will be transitioning from founder-led sales to your first sales hire. So we'll get to that, of course, eventually. But welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'd love to hear what's your favorite sales book of all time. And you could deviate from sales book and maybe one or two key lessons that you got from that. My favorite, this is an overarching just favorite book generally, but I've pulled a lot of lessons about sales from it. And it's The Art of Fielding. So it's a book about a baseball team. And it actually kind of riffs off of Moby Dick. And so the whole book talks you through this small liberal arts college and how the team is built and just a lot of team dynamics and dynamics around how people are motivated and how to focus on building a great team, knowing that teams are built of individuals. And I think so much of sales is emotional intelligence, right? We talk about EQ all the time. And so much of that is tied to understanding what motivates people and what people's goals are. Let's move over to the topic of the day. So as we mentioned, it'll be about transitioning from founder-led sales to your first sales hire. I'm wondering why for you, you know, this particular topic, why is this top of mind for you? So it's top of mind for a few reasons. When we started to build WISE, it was really a passion project. It started with Jordan Wan, who's the founder of Closer IQ. And Jordan and I had met when I was at Bowery, and he was building Closer IQ. And every time we would grab coffee, we'd come back to this pain point around women in sales. I was you know, working with our portfolio companies at the time to help them build their early go-to-market teams. I was helping them build their boards. And there was this massive gap. And Jordan was seeing this too from the Closer IQ side. And for those listening that aren't familiar with Closer IQ, Closer is a a talent strategy firm based in New York, but with a presence in Boston and San Francisco as well. Long story short, end of 2017, we start putting on these panels focused on women in sales. So I was curating groups of women, typically VP or above. And we were speaking about their journey in sales, talking about really tactical things like the art of negotiation. And our audiences started to grow. And then we went to Boston and started doing it. And so the community started to grow really organically because this was something a lot of people really wanted, but they didn't know how to find peers in the community because there really weren't that many women in sales or the ones that were out there were often on teams predominantly of men. And so they were really craving this sort of peer-to-peer community. So as WISE grew, I eventually ended up coming over to start doing this full-time in the beginning of 2019. And through last year, the goal was generate revenue, build out a sales process that made sense, understand what our pricing needed to be. And now, starting 2020, we've reached a point where we have a repeatable sales model. We have a motion that we know works. We have a playbook that we know works. Granted, we're always iterating on that. And I've started to transition out of this sort of founder-led sales into a different role. And we're building a BD team. So 
I have my first person right now who's handling our sponsorship sales. And it's funny because for years, especially when I was on the talent side and when I was at Bowery, I was working with our founders and getting them ready to make this transition from founder-led sales to hiring their first person to run sales and then eventually a team. And now I'm going through it. And there's so many things that I think are obviously easy to preach. But when you're the one doing it, it's really tough because you've been doing it for so long. You know the storylines. You know how to pivot and turn the conversation to make sure that it's addressing all the main key points. And then when you bring somebody else in, there's a little bit of a, oh, I'm, I'm not ready to let go yet, but I know I need to because this can't grow if I do this forever. And so it's, I think, a topic that a lot of founders really struggle with, but it's something I'm feeling right now as well. As you were talking, I was you know, reflecting on sort of how Jordan you know, was really helpful in empowering you to get off the ground. I think the stats are something like two-thirds of people in sales are male and I think a third female, something to that effect. If the audience is like that, what can the male listeners do to help empower the female sellers around them? It's a great question. And the data that I've found actually to be the most accurate around women in sales is, and this is CBRE data, four out of 10 entry-level sellers are women. It drops to three out of 10 when you get to mid-level management, and then it's two out of 10 when you get to the C-suite. So what can what can men in the sales profession do? I think First and foremost, understand that it's not just about hiring more women on your sales team. For a long time, I would have people come to me and say, Hey, I just, you know, I've got a team of all guys. We've got a team of about 20, and I just need to hire a woman. Okay, well, let's unpack that a little bit. Why? How are you planning to do this? And and frankly, like, why does a woman want to come work in the sales pit that for all intents and purposes feels like a frat house? How are you going to change all of those things before you go out and just try to pluck someone and put them in there and hope that they stick, right? There's so much more that goes beyond just hiring someone. What tools and resources are you giving them to grow and learn and develop? How are you connecting them with mentors and other leaders, whether or not they're at your company, actually? One of the best things I think sales leaders do is connect their sellers with people outside of their company's four walls. And how do you make sure that you're not just bringing this person in for the sake of bringing them in, you're doing it with the right intentions? I've heard that the wise events are not exclusively women. And certainly I've heard greater than 10%, sometimes greater than 20% of the audience is male. Do I have that right? That's correct. And we encourage men to come to these events. It's actually funny. Sometimes we'll look around and there will be a few guys who maybe came with women on their team, but they were the only guy that ended up coming. And the women on their team will start chatting with other folks and networking. And you'll notice the guy kind of in the corner or not engaging with the group. And so usually what we'll do, the people on our team will do is always try to grab that person, get them involved in a conversation or strike up a conversation. But I've had multiple men come up to me at these events and say, oh my gosh, I never realized how intimidating it is to be in a room with people that are different because every sales event I've ever gone to is predominantly male. And I've never appreciated that it's sometimes tough to engage in these conversations. So I actually think that ends up being a really good lesson aside from all of the wonderful stuff we talk about and our panelists share during the actual event. I, I do think it's a really important moment for people to be in an environment that might not be comfortable. As you have been building out WISE, you now are starting to have to practice what you preached before. What has been the the most surprising thing where like 
if you were advising somebody as a strategic advisor, you might have given them one piece of advice, but you found that that was really hard to apply on your own. It's easy for me to answer because it's the thing I have failed at so, so miserably. And I'm, I'm really actively working on fixing. Something I always told founders, always told execs was make sure that you're documenting things you're doing and you're building these playbooks as you go because it can be really, really difficult once you bring this person in to try to train them and have it all be word of mouth and hearsay as opposed to things that are actually documented and written down. Because once this person gets in the door, they're not always going to be able to ping you or lean over and say, hey, who's responsible for this? Or how do I do this? Or have we built a template for this? Or what's the process here with the CRM? And you know, it was something that I was very adamant about when I was at Bowery with our founders. And alas, here I am now, you know, working with Cassie, who's running BD for us, as well as our market level chairs. And I'm realizing that I did a really, really poor job of documenting things. So right now I'm kind of retroactively going back and building this playbook, you know, some templates of emails that have worked well in the past and, you know, a a more concise checklist for how to think about building our panels for when we do a market launch. There are things that need to be playbooked and need to be written out because as people are starting and as you hire more and more, you can't always do this one-off word of mouth. Hey, just you know, give me a call and we'll go through this. So that has probably been the most painful lesson so far, but working on fixing that. As you're learning your sales process, for example, you have these little epiphanies, right? And those epiphanies feel so powerful at the time, but six months later, they feel second nature and you wouldn't necessarily think to transfer that knowledge to your new hire. And it's so important. Understanding too that you will constantly be iterating. This is a living doc. It's not something that you write down once and it becomes the Bible. But if there's a piece of advice I could give to early founders, aside from obviously making a great first sales hire, it would be just being absolutely maniacal about documentation. You mentioned your first sales hire love to hear about what some of her qualities are and, and you know what other people should look for when they are hiring a first sales hire. First and foremost, the sales learning curve is something we talk about a lot. So this was actually something that was coined by the Andreessen team years ago. And it is four parts. So the first part is what's called ignition, which is basically founder selling. That's where you're failing fast, where the founder is kind of selling the first X amount of logos, they're laying the foundation, they're doing all the experimenting. Then you move on to this initiation stage where you bring in the renaissance reps. Renaissance reps is a term that I find myself saying a lot, but they're your people who can do a little bit of everything. They don't need everything defined for them. They are happy to sell and handle those conversations, but they're probably doing you know, SDR work, AE work, and CSM work. They are going beyond that even most of the time and also doing some marketing. They're, they're getting their hands in everything. And I used to jokingly tell founders at Bowery, like, this is your person who needs to be able to sell into IBM and then fix the printer. And then from there, you go into this transition phase. That's when you bring in more of a true VP of sales. They're standardizing the playbook. Team gets more built out. And then from there, it turns into more of the coin-operated execution phase. And you know the reps are averaging three to five times revenue on an annual basis. It's more plug and play. So when I was thinking about who made sense as this kind of renaissance rep for WISE, it needed to be a mix of a few things. The person had to be comfortable 
telling the story. And so it meant that someone needed to be close to what we'd been doing over the years. And Cassie had done that. She had helped with events from her closer IQ days, whether that was helping check people in to helping man the bar. She had been to a lot of our events, so she could tell the story of the growth. She also had traditionally worn a lot of hats previously because she'd been an early hire once before. And I think that's something that often gets forgotten about. Not so much domain expertise, but stage expertise. Are they comfortable in ambiguity? Are they going to be resourceful enough to pick up the ball and know that things aren't going to be totally defined and that's okay? She also had really, really phenomenal executive presence, which is important because we work with women at all levels and they need to be comfortable and know that you're an expert in this space. We also sell into the enterprise. So knowing that she was going to be getting on the phone with executive decision makers, there had to be that level of trust. Way, way, way back when I was applying to business school and my business school asked for us to do a 360 review, which I had never had before. And one of the people who filled out my 360 was a client of mine. And she said, Jeremy has an okay head on his shoulders, but he needs to increase his executive presence. What does it actually mean to have executive presence? I think there's a level of general confidence and calmness in a situation where you know you're punching above your weight. And how one gains executive presence, I really believe, is experience. You bring people up by putting them in those meetings with executives so they get comfortable hearing how the conversation flows. Now, they might not say anything or they may only say a few things, but making sure that you're constantly pulling your up-and-comers into meetings where, in some cases, they have no right to be in that meeting, but they know just enough to be able to hold their own should they be asked a question. What's most important is they're getting comfortable in those environments. They're listening how you handle objections. People with great executive presence, I think, aren't easily flustered when put on their heels and are comfortable saying, I don't know if asked a question that they don't know. I don't know, but I will find out and get back to you. Because I struggled so much with it, at least for me, I boiled it down to three major categories. The three major categories are mindset, verbal communication, and nonverbal communication. So if you want to fake it till you make it on executive presence, to your point about mindset, that's where I put calm, which is the first thing you mentioned. And I would also throw things like decisiveness in there and optimism. I think you nailed it. I think that's actually a piece that is forgotten about when we talk about why everyone loves hiring athletes in sales, right? The the generic terms that get thrown out when people say, I want to hire an athlete because they're going to be hungry, they're going to have grit, throw that out the window. They're going to be calm in high pressure situations. That is one of the reasons a lot of athletes end up doing well in sales is because many, and, and depending on you know the level that they played, they have to learn and master being calm. One last question on this renaissance rep concept, right? So you said a lot of times they are an SDR, an AE, or I'll just combine those two things into a full cycle rep, basically. They're a CSM, they're a marketer, right? They, they fix the printer, all these things. So, you know, there's this thing about hiring where you, these ors, right? And, and the or might be, do I find someone who has industry experience or has sales experience, right? So I'm wondering between these three things, like the AE, the CSM, and the marketer, is there a 
major and two minors, like what is the most important thing that they have to possess in order to be successful in that renaissance seller role of those of those three, AE, CSM, and marketer? What's If you had to rank them kind of one, two, and three, where would you put the ranking? It depends on your sale. And it depends on where you need to generate the most interest. Is it that you know, you've got a ton of inbound coming in. And so it's really more a matter of somebody catching all of that and closing the business. Is it that you're in a very niche industry and, and you know, your biggest competition is a behemoth that's been around since the 70s, in which case you probably need someone who has a lot of experience with that SDR side or, or the marketing and getting your name out there. It's tough for me to power rank them. I really do think it depends. So I would say without fail, the person needs to have an understanding of how to be an SDR, no matter as a Renaissance rep, it's very, very difficult to come in and be a true Renaissance rep without any understanding of how to go out and generate your own leads. You know, as far as the other two, I I think it's very contingent upon who you're selling into, what your sales motion looks like, and really the stage at which your company's at and how well known you are if, if you're starting to become more of a name brand or if this person's got to go out and every conversation is the first time someone's heard of your company. Just reflecting lately, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, can there be career SDRs and what the challenges are there? So I was wondering for the Renaissance rep, are there people who make career Renaissance reps sort of going from one early stage startup to the next because that's their skill set and they're not comfortable or they don't fit in and being the highly specialized rep? I've met some really, and and worked with, been hugely fortunate to work with people who are phenomenal Renaissance reps. They are so good at coming in and defining the ICP, your ideal customer profile, and building out that initial sales playbook and understanding how to get some market notoriety. But then as the team grows and more processes are put in, and, and really as you start to build over them, right? You've got a more true VP of sales who has done this before and knows how to manage a lot of different levels in the org, that Renaissance rep is going to start to get kind of itchy. They're going to want to go build something again. And so these are the folks that you see spend two, three years at a company, that company gets to, you know, series B, series C, and they're ready to go. And those reps are so important. And I I think that people should really try to do a self-diagnosis around what stage do you feel like you thrive? What stage are you happiest in? What parts of your role do you really love? Do you love this kind of making sense of the ambiguity and taking a ton of meetings and building out Salesforce and what that looks like? Or are you more comfortable when there's a process and you know exactly what your goals are? And this is my quota at the beginning of every quarter. And I know that if I hit that, these are my accelerators great, then maybe Renaissance Rep isn't going to be right for you because guess what? That quota might change every quarter. So to answer your question, yes, I think it is possible to have somebody who is a lifetime Renaissance Rep. If people want to learn more about WISE, get involved, men and women, and or connect with you, what are the best ways to do that? Womeninsaleseverywhere.com is our website. If you click join us there and put in your information, you'll get updates via our newsletter about upcoming events in your area, as well as anything else that we're doing. And then the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I really try to always get back to folks as quickly as possible on LinkedIn. So would love to chat with anyone who wants to learn more about what we're doing. 
Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.